Um, hello, my name is Dr. Irene Zempi. I am pleased to welcome you to the British Society of Criminology Hate Crime Network podcast. Today's guests are Alison Vincent and Mike Ensworth from the Sophie Lancaster Foundation. First, I would like to briefly uh, introduce our guests. Um, Alison Vincent is the chief executive of the Sophie Lancaster Foundation. Alison was brought into the foundation by Sylvia, founder of the charity and Sophie's mom. Alison's background is in education and the arts, and her specialism is marketing and communications. She was a committed supporter of the foundation from first hearing Black Roses, Wood Laureate, and Simon Armitage uh, Poetic Sequence and Elegy to Sophie, which jumped Radio 4 switchboards when it was first broadcast in 2010. Mike Ensworth currently chairs the National Police Chief Council and Association of Police and Crime Commissioners Independent Advisory Groups on Hate Crime. Mike is a trustee and director of the Sophie Lancaster Foundation. After a varied career in the prison service from officer in HMP Lincoln to running a lifer unit in Wormwood Scrubs and also deputy governor in HMP Holloway, Mike worked in Kosovo during and immediately after the conflict, organizing the evacuation of refugees and also coordinating the work of forensic teams investigating war crimes. On returning to the UK, Mike worked in varied voluntary uh, sector organizations, including director of offender services in the Princess Trust, and also Director of London Services for Stop Hate UK. Finally, Mike is the Chair of the Management Board of ARC Theatre. Alison and Mike, welcome to our podcast uh, today. Thank Thanks, you. Thank you. Uh, to start with, uh, can you please tell us uh, about the Sophie Lancaster Foundation and why it was set up, as well as the aims and objectives of the Foundation? Yes, of course. Thank you, Irene. Um, the foundation was set up following the murder of a young woman, Sophie Lancaster, in 2007. She and her boyfriend uh, went into a park. They were walking home on summer's evening and they were set upon by five young men. Uh, they started on Sophie's boyfriend, Robert, first and they punched him and then kicked him and then beat him till he was unconscious. And then when Sophie got on the floor. Sorry. When Sophie got on the floor to hold his head in her lap, she was screaming for help, but there were other people in the park. Um, they then started on Sophie and they kicked her and they beat her and they stamped on her head um, and they jumped on her head from a skateboard ramp and they did that till she was unconscious. Um, and then eventually those two young people were left bleeding in the park uh, when paramedics arrived, they couldn't identify who was the male and who was the female because of the severity to their facial injuries. Uh, they both got taken to hospital where they were put into induced comas. And after a long road and various intervals on the way, um, thankfully, Robert survived. Um, Sophie, they tried to bring out of the coma, but every time it was disastrous. And after doing brain stem cell tests, they, they said 13 days later there was no hope. And the family agreed to switch the machines off and 
Sophie took 20 minutes to die. Um, and she took 20 minutes to die because she'd gone into that park on that night and she'd looked different to other people in that park. And that was the motivation for those those young people to attack. Um, and Sylvia, Sophie's mum, sat in hospital um, on those long nights, thinking at that point she was going to get better. Sylvia was a very practical woman. Um, she was very no-nonsense and she sat there and I think her way of coping, she knew it was because they looked different and she decided, do you know what, I'm going to set a charity up and we're going to take Sophie and we're going to go into schools and they're going to look at her and then they're going to listen and they're going to see that she's gentle and she's sensitive and she likes reading and she likes art and she's not maybe what they think she is and we're going to educate people. Um, and Sophie and Rob had been attacked three times before that incident and they'd never reported the other incidents. And I think she just decided we need to change this. We need to do it. Um, and they came up with a strap line for Sophie, which is stamp out prejudice, hatred and intolerance everywhere. And that was decided um, actually when Sophie was still in hospital, that was going to be the plan. Um, and then when Sophie died, those 13 days later, um, Sylvia got into bed with her and held her and um and she died and um and she decided you know what we're going to do it more than ever this work is so needed we have to go and do it um, and that's what she did so they set up the foundation very shortly after um and we have three main aims um the first one is to be a lasting legacy for sophie the second thing is to educate people particularly young people about alternative subcultures and to do all we can to combat hate crime targeting those people and actually all people to be fair we work very closely with lots of the other strands of hate um, and also the other thing is to campaign to actually add alternative subculture to the monitored strands of hate crime they were the three objectives and to some extent that is really our central core we'll keep on you know working towards those as, as we continue so that's who we are and that's why we do it Excellent. Thank you, Alison. Can you also please provide us with a brief overview of what hate crime against alternative subcultures uh, includes? If I can just start off with that, I think it's the same as hate crime with any group, um, whereby first and foremost, it's a criminal act and it's a criminal act that was committed against the defendant, uh, sorry, against the victim because of a characteristic of that um, victim and that in some way motivated the perpetrator and that they can demonstrate that and for me it's a really important distinction at this time there are those people that want to view the work on hate crime as something to do with political correctness or preventing outrage or insult it's not it's about preventing criminal acts like the dreadful act that was committed on sophie Should I say a little bit maybe about the alternative community and, and what we find when we talk to them? Sometimes there is there is an element when we talk, we always concentrate on on the really extreme and the ultra dreadful incidents like the murder of Sophie, because that grabs people's attentions and they see how far this goes. 
But obviously hate crime starts with that anti-locution. It's people saying things, people othering people all the time. And if you're alternative, that is just a daily basis habit. That's what you have to get used to. So it's street harassment. It's being spat on. It's people having drinks poured over them. It's people being told to die because that's what they want to do or self-harm because that's what you like if you're an emo. It's people continually having to stand their ground and defend themselves. And that can be against a physical attack. It can be against bullying. It can be against, you know, people urging other people to harm them. It's that whole gamut of hate, really. And I was talking to somebody about this recently and they said to me, and I know it's awful when you think about the physical assaults, but even if you don't go that far, imagine living every day thinking you're not good enough or there's something wrong with you and can you imagine what that feels like um, and I think that's what it can feel like for the alternative community I think they're a joyous community and we celebrate everything wonderful about it so for very many people you know they they love that community they're in but sometimes they have to fight to be allowed to be themselves um, and I think I think groups who suffer from hate crime know that feeling all too well you feel like you're fighting to be yourself mike did you want to come in then and say something i was just going to add that for me there's a narrative that goes with hate crime and it's a narrative of a perpetrator and a perpetrator saying to a victim i'm attacking you i'm stealing from you i'm insulting you but you know what lots of people agree with me when people stay silent in the face of hate crime the victims start to believe that. They feel isolated. They feel othered, uh, as you say. And that's when it becomes incredibly dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And not just the individual victim, but the wider community that the victim yes. belongs, because as we know, hate crime is a message crime. Um, moving forward, the foundation has been working very hard to stamp out prejudice, hatred and intolerance. For example, you organized the world's first alternative hate crime conference in November 2014. You have also been offering training and education to tackle hate crime. Can you please tell us a bit more about these activities and why these are important to tackle hate crime? Yes, of course. Um, the reason we set up the conferences, I think we decided from very early days, is very little research into things like alternative subcultures and the experiences of hate crime, although some groups have done it. Um, and what we wanted to do for the first time really was bring together policymakers with stakeholders, with academics, with the alternative community and discuss those issues to actually look at their experience of hate crime and to actually see what the next steps are. What do we need to do together? One, to flag this up on the agenda. And I think for any demonised society and any society that is in a way out of the mainstream, it can be even less appealing to lawmakers and to policymakers to touch. I think often as well, if you are looking for the voting public to support you, you may feel like you've got to stick your neck out to support these vulnerable groups because where does it get you politically? So there are some very real barriers we have when you're dealing with any, any part of society that is often been more marginalised in the past and maybe isn't seen in the same way. Um, so it was a great opportunity. And of course, because we're the Sophie Lancaster Foundation, we had lots of music and drama and the really creative industries. And we've always loved working with, with musicians, artists, poets and writers. And Sylvia always used to say, um, 
we love working with them and they love working with us and the reason they write about us and the reason they write about Sophie is they know what we're saying is true and I think that's a brilliant way to think about it because often people who are more on the creative side they've they've been subjected to a lot of these issues themselves and when we talk about the reality for those people in society they get it because maybe they've been there and um, so that's what the conference was about and a lot of our other work following on from that has been building on that so looking at maybe the justice system working with police working with the probation service working with prisoners talking to them and telling them about Sophie's story um, we were very lucky that Judge Russell, um, who actually was the judge who heard the trial, recognised Sophie's murder as a hate crime. He said that the, the sole reason they were attacked was because he said that they look different to you and your friends. Um, and he actually legislated, it was actually under that legislation he um, convicted and sentenced. So we were very fortunate in that um, and that really mattered to us really obviously victims get more support as well there's obviously things about sentences and the crime is acknowledged so that really matters so trying to get the training maybe to other people who aren't quite as up on it or as aware as judge russell i think sylvia always felt another judge on another day she would have had a very different outcome and that that feels like a gamble and it doesn't really feel good enough that people's experience on the day depends on whether a judge or maybe whether the police at the early stages when they're investigating or even maybe the call handler, however they take that call, however they envisage those people, how do they really listen to what's being said on the phone or in that courtroom? So any work we can do to open their minds and change awareness and make them think maybe a little bit more deeply about what's going on. That was really important. So we work with councils, we work in education, anybody will have us basically. Um, and we just try and we just try and change perspectives, think about alternative um, subcultures, think about those communities and their experiences and what we all need to do to maybe look at our own, our own perceptions maybe and our own biases and how we treat other people. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're doing. And sadly, I have to be honest, the work seems more necessary now than ever. And I'd like to just pick up on that. Um, a lot of the work that's focused on schools and the importance of that. Uh, a lot of people that work in the in, in the hate crime field, sadly, are, are of an age like myself. And actually, it's really important that we continue to engage with young people. The way that hate manifests itself evolves and changes the language of hatred used changes and evolves and unless we're talking to young people we're not aware of that um i did some work a number of years ago um looking at setting up counter narrative projects looking at working online and i was training a lot of people on how to go and deal with things on twitter and facebook and frankly young people said to me that's not where we manifest hate that's not where we experienced it the most go and play call of duty uh, online uh, on the PlayStation. Go and play FIFA online on the PlayStation. There you'll experience really naked hate. Uh, and actually, it's really important that we take that learning and, and recognize it. And also with young people to free themselves from prejudice. Um, one of the things that can absolutely blight a young person's life is when they start to adopt those prejudices. It doesn't enrich their lives. It doesn't help them. It may make them feel part of something and belonging to something but that thing that they're belonging to is corrosive and dangerous and actually one of the people that it will damage the most is them and the foundation going in talking to young people and dealing with young people 
absolutely is where uh, a lot of this work needs to be focused and it's absolutely where we is and if i could just pick up uh, one of the things that really occurred to me about a point that uh, alison was making i'm very conscious of a murder a number of years ago outside cheshire of a young traveler called johnny delaney that case because the judge failed to acknowledge the racist nature of that murder the damage that that has done between the criminal justice system and the traveller community reverberates to this day and it is decades away that that occurred i recently went to do some work on a traveller site and one of the first things they talked to me about was we're not interested because you know what the criminal justice system let us down really badly it was one murder but the impact has continued to echo and alison's absolutely right in the same way when the criminal justice system gets something absolutely right the message that sends out to a whole community is a positive and a strong one yeah absolutely and can i just pick up on this on the education thing because it's really important to us you talked about young people really um, maybe gaining some of those views without even really thinking about it and absorbing that prejudice and harming themselves. We do sessions in schools all the time and we did a really brilliant one. There's an evaluation and a testimonial on our website and the teacher who got us in had got us in because of the behaviour of one child, which was really unpleasant and using really, really inappropriate language targeted specifically actually at one other child. Um, and they got us in and we did the session, we did a workshop and we talked about what happened and Sophie's story comes in at the very end. Um, but when we got the evaluation back, the teacher said, you might have thought the group was really quiet, but the next day after you came in, this one child said that same language again at this other child and actually repeated those same tropes and said the same thing. And she said the rest of the class just get up and said, stop it, stop it, we don't want that in our classroom. And that was one of those really humbling moments when you think, how have we maybe hopefully helped that experience of that child whose life was being made a nightmare by that other one? But also those other people in the classroom, the other students who were really bystanders to what was going on. We've made that conversion in them to being upstanders to, to really support us and actually stand against hate. And that felt amazing. So when you hear things like that, this really ceases to be us just chatting about an awful story and actually sharing, you know, what's not a nice thing to do. It's genuinely about changing behaviours and having a real impact on the ground. Um, and we're, you know, really hopeful and really proud, you know, if that's what we manage to do. And I guess it's so um, rewarding to know that your work has so much impact. And these single cases linked to the critical incidents that Mike suggested before shows the then you know the potential ripple effects that yes. unless you intervened, you know, it could escalate to something Absolutely. far more serious. Yes. Um, and also everybody else who are those bystanders exactly. who were allowing it to happen, you know, you've got all these agents who are actually now thinking in a different way to go on to other schools or to be in other communities or eventually in other workplaces. And that's how this begins, you know, they're beginning to decide on where they want to be on this issue, um, which is so important. And they stop to remain silent. Now they you know they challenge those views whether it's in the school the family the local community yeah. and, and so forth um 
Okay, moving forward, uh, Black Roses won the BBC Radio Best Speech Programme of 2011 and was shortlisted for the two 2011 Ted Hughes Award. Also murdered for being different, won BAFTA for Best Single Drama at the British Academy Television Awards. Can you please provide us uh, with a brief uh, synopsis of these um, fantastic programmes? Yeah, thank you. Um, Simon Armitage, who's now Poet Laureate, contacted Sylvia um, after the crime and said he wanted to write something and he wanted to be really respectful. So he met Sylvia um, and they talked. And then after they'd had every meeting, he sent back his text and it's just completely beautiful. Um, and he wove together Sylvia's thoughts as that mom who had this child who was different and who was her own personality. Um, and also then the journey with what happened to Sophie, the hospital, and then eventually Sophie's death. But he wove into this, this beautiful poetic sequence. And we always describe it as he gave Sophie back her voice. So in this poetry, you hear this young woman who's who's just beginning to move from being a child to being, well, she's 20, a young adult at the start of her life. And he gives her that voice, which is just so beautiful. So it was initially on radio, it then moved to the Royal Exchange Theatre, and then shortly after that it was made into a film. But it's a really emotive and powerfully beautiful, beautiful thing. And occasionally we'll be out and you'll be walking across the car park at the services and a lorry's pulled in and they'll wind the window down and shout out, do you know, do you know you made me cry when it was on the radio? Because they always recognise Sylvia and I think it had that impact really with everyone that heard it. Um, and that came out in 2010, it started in 2017, actually a bit later, that's when 10th anniversary actually of Sophie dying, that's when Murder for Being Different came out and that is still on iPlayer now, so anybody who wants to see it, please go and have a look while it's still on there. Um, and that tells a story, slightly. again the families were very involved and tells a story slightly from Robert's side, um, so you see his journey through what happened. Um, and again, it's just beautiful. It's very poetic. There's lots of flashbacks as music. Um, there, there is some violence in a sense in these things because it's creating this reality. You know, we can't sanitise what happened, um, but it's done in a really in a really sensitive and we think very beautiful way. So, yeah, if anyone wants to, please do have a look at that. It's an incredibly strong thing. But again, they're wonderful opportunities when they're done this well of actually capturing um, some interest and actually letting people explore what's going on. And similarly, although you didn't mention it, we worked with Coronation Street um, not long ago now, a couple of years ago, and that was amazing because, again, that brought the story right back up to date, um, 2021, into people's houses. And again, because they had time to develop a characterisation, they allowed the goth character to settle into the soap and be there before the attack happened. And in this way, for almost one of the first times, I think, actually, in the media, when something bad happened to somebody who was alternative, the whole of the country was on the, the goth character's side because they saw she was really lovely. She wasn't introduced as some type of stereotype to be in a show for half an hour and then either do the attack, probably, or maybe, you know, be attacked herself. She was there for people to see. She was just a really lovely human being. And what happened to her in that hate crime was horrendous. Um, so we were very grateful to Coronation Street for really giving it that time and allowing people to um, to really get to know the character because you need that to happen for people to really get how awful that hate crime was. Because I think otherwise 
your your judgment of the hate crime is often tempered by what you think of the type of people are that have suffered the hate crime. So if they're in a group that you're less maybe at one with or have your own suspicions about, you don't really see that crime for all its horror. Um, and because they'd seen her and they liked her, I think when the crime happened, they really got how, you know, absolutely vile that attack was. So, no, we were very grateful to Coronation Street. It was a it was a great way to uh, reintroduce the story. Absolutely. And I use these resources with my students for the hate crime module I teach. And they are also captivated by the story and it's told in different ways um, and it's such a creative way to tell that story even after so many years after it has happened um, and some people still experience these these horrible um, incidents whether it's low level or more serious um, attacks um, can i just say on that i had yeah. a, had an email yesterday because somebody's daughter was attacked by four people on the bus yesterday because she was a goth Last week we had news of somebody with a broken eye socket because they were alternative. Somebody's dad contacted us last week because he's scared that his son's going to be the equivalent of another Sophie. And those three people were probably in the last eight, nine days. Um, so, yes, you know, this is very much still going on. Absolutely. Um, so uh, on that point, in terms of, you know, um, recording this as a hate crime nationally, in April 2013, Greater Manchester Police became the first police authority to record and monitor hate crimes and incidents against people from alternative subcultures. And then other forces like Nottinghamshire Police, Leicestershire Police followed suit. However, in December 2021, the Law Commission recommended that alternative subcultures should not be added to the list of monitored strands of hate crime. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I'll start, shall I? And then Mike can maybe come in with some detail. Sylvia, when Sylvia founded the charity, she wanted it to be a strand because she wanted it to be treated in the same way, be given the same... Um, I suppose, training and exposure so people would recognise it. And she always said it makes a difference because it means that it's treated, it's investigated better, is how she used to phrase it. Um, she felt it got more credence and they'd look into it more carefully. She felt the sentencing was different. She also felt that the victims got more support. So it really mattered. One of the issues with all of this, of course, if it's not a monitored strand of hate, we don't have numbers. So, you know, when the Law Commission come back in the report they've just done and said there was really limited evidence that the attacks on alternative subcultures were prevalent. Well, if no one's recording it, then that's not really a surprise, is it? And it's like one of those clubs that you try really hard to get into. But the thing that they, you have to do to get in, they won't allow you to do. So if nobody's measuring, actually, how do you ever get over that one? Um, so, like I said before, I think I think we felt we were very fortunate with the judge at Sophie's murder trial. And sometimes it feels, you know, we're all equal, but some of us are just a little bit more equal than others. And if the training isn't taking place, if people aren't recognising alternative subculture hate crime, what happens when you report it? Do they listen? Does anybody take that much notice? What happens when it goes to court? You know, we know it's hard enough with some of the strands that actually are on the on the uh, monitored strands of hate sometimes to be listened to and to be taken seriously. So if you're not on that list, I think it's even harder. So I think for us, we will always be campaigning to be treated the same. And I think 
if you have some that you do this for and you have others that you don't do this for, I think it does set up a hierarchy because part of the training of anyone in that system, you very clearly get told what to do for these people and then the others are sort of lost in the others pile at the end. Having said that, I understand there's issues with computer systems. I understand how many others can you have. I do appreciate it. I just feel from our perspective, it will be another step up to supporting people who are trying to get help, trying to seek support. There will be the training and the acknowledgement when they make contact. We know what this is and we're going to help you. And I think we're a long way off that at the moment. Mike, I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah, a, a few a few thoughts, really. I think, one, you're quite right about that evidential base and the almost inevitability that that sets up a hierarchy. Uh, the, the most stark contrast I can give is the Community Security Trust that represents the Jewish community. That, for a population of about 300,000 Jewish people in this country, has got 3,000 volunteers. So one in a hundred people from that community are volunteers. It's no surprise that every single anti-Semitic crime is, is measured and registered. When um, Sylvia started, there was her and a car. I mean, that was it for the whole of uh, the alternative subculture. So incredibly difficult. Having said that, I, I, I do recognise the integrity of the Law Commission um, and I think they, they, they have got a process that they've gone through with, with some diligence. And the great irony for me is we now have had two Law Commission uh, reports, both of which have recommended that between the existing monitored strands, we should eradicate the hierarchy of hate. And there is no simple way of putting this the government has just ignored both reports the, co the commission uh, there's a protocol that says every commission report should be responded to within six months this is the second report that they simply haven't responded to so even within the monitored strands you're quite right we're establishing a hierarchy of hate and that is now becoming enshrined and that's really difficult and really dangerous because the sentiments that Alison was expressing so eloquently being felt within the alternative subculture community is being felt um, throughout. I think we need to start to learn when we look at what is happening with hate crime with what happened in Nottingham around misogyny. Starting to measure it does make a difference and I think there are other strands of hate crime as well that we could start to expand to. Certainly I think homelessness, uh, having done some work in the past with homeless communities, there is another community that feels uh, that they do not get this equal, equal protection of the law going forward. I think the other bit is about practice and this is something that I think we can make inroads in with police forces. Even if we do not have the ability to increase the sentence for certain forms of uh, hate crime, including the alternative subculture. We can at least start to improve training so that police officers and others recognise the damage that individuals suffer from being the victims of being attacked because of who they are, not because of what they've done or about, or about what they possess. Because the damage that that is inflicted is the same no matter what the characteristic is. Having done work in schools, talking to people with red hair, it may sound laughable that they get attacked because of that, but do not underestimate just how deep and just how corrosive uh, that can be. And don't underestimate just how difficult hate crimes are to recover from, for individuals and for communities. And 
as I say, my, my, my one frustration in all of this is we now have a government that is not responding at all to any of those debates, to any of those recommendations. Absolutely. And I just wanted to add, in addition to the hierarchy of victims that we have at the moment, is that we are missing the intersectionality of identities. You know, that's another big thing. But maybe that's a topic for another podcast. Another day, it's such a huge thing, the intersectionality and how multiple identities interact to create unique experiences of oppression, discrimination, hate crime for individuals from you know, that could be seen as vulnerable and different because of their multiple identities. Matt, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I do. Um, you, because you're absolutely right. And no, we, we have got a, there's a whole other subject there. But it also confuses the cops. If they are being required by government to decide how rigorously they deal with hate crime dependent upon the characteristic of the victim, that is a really difficult place to go. One of the things I understand talking to Nottinghamshire police when they started to measure misogyny is actually it didn't increase the workload. It made life easier for cops because they recognised that when that prejudice occurred, they had to deal with it no matter what the, the characteristic. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we know particularly, I think, in the area of Islamophobia, that intersectionality with misogyny is huge. Um, and 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 has within uh, Muslim communities, I think, for young teenage girls, the feeling of oppression on all sides can be can, can be quite um, difficult. Can I just comment on that as well? I think the other aspect that occurs to me in all these conversations is we're spending so much time talking about what was it about the person that made them attacked, as opposed to actually what happened to them. Who was it that did it and what we need to do about it? Because again, I can understand why recording the individual types of hate crime or against that community means we can put resources into the right way and we can see what's going on, we can monitor. I get all of that, but it seems as though we've stopped there and all we're trying to work out is who these people are that's being attacked rather than actually thinking about it from the other angle. And then it, you just end up being on the right list or the wrong list as to whether you end up being one of the groups that can get mentioned. And again, you know, it's too much about why was it about you that got assaulted? Let's let's actually look at what's happening to people and let's find a system that helps them rather than working out whether it fits with us thinking about how many people we can have in an action list. Just seems the wrong way around. It's about prevention, isn't it? It should be. Prevention. And we should be recording to help. Yeah. Sorry, Absolutely. we should be helping recording to help work out what to do with resources and to help monitor and to see where we've got problem issues but really mm. what it's become is we're ident we're letting how we're recording the system almost control how we train how we investigate you know how we legislate it seems to be the wrong way around absolutely mike do you want to add on that <laughs> yeah it was, it was another point about it follows on for that point about practicality because one of the things we know is that hierarchies of hate don't work if you're talking about hate crime perpetrators, I've met very few of them that have got a single mission, that have got one form of prejudice and no other form of prejudice. They seek to attack all sorts of people. When we had that huge upsurge in um, hate crime that was triggered by the uh, Brexit referendum, one of the biggest groups that suffered 
was the gay community. Now, it is really difficult to understand the connection between a vote on leaving Europe and one's sexual orientation. Nevertheless, that increased. And I think that is recognised in most communities. Uh, Mike Wine, one of the founders of the Community Security Trust, at a recent meeting, was really adamant and really clear. The Jewish community wants no more than we offer to every community. Because actually, if they are perceived as getting more, that actually, ironically, increases their risk of being targeted in the future. The hierarchy of hate in all aspects is a real failure uh, of the system to deal effectively with these problems. Absolutely. Um, you recently did a survey to find out how the alternative community is being affected by hate crime. Can you share with us some of the key findings from the survey? Um, I can answer that very briefly and say, well, no, not really. Um, let me tell you about as much as I can do. Um, after the report was published, the Law Commission report um, in 2021, December 2021, um, and it said there was a lack of evidence about the prevalence of targeting people from alternative subcultures. The only thing we could really do is say, well, come on, let's find out from you. Please tell us what are your experiences. Um, and so we launched that survey and all through the festivals last year, we went out to all our summer festivals and talked about it. Obviously did loads of social media. Um, and what we've tried to do is find out what's happening, what happens, you know, have you been a victim? What types of crimes? Did you report it? What's your experiences of reporting? And then at the bottom, as well as that quantitative data, we've got a qualitative section really where we're beginning to understand people's feelings about what's going on. And it's that bit that is the most heartbreaking and gives the most insight. And all of that data is being analysed now. We have been invited to, there's a conference in March in the Northeast, which is the National Police Chiefs Council meeting hate crime, which is the first time I think it's been done for three years because of COVID and everything else. We're very, very delighted to have been invited. And I think we're going to run a workshop there talking about this, um, this research, which is going to be amazing. Um, and when you read the comments, I mean, obviously, there's lots of stuff about reporting and statistically, I think that's going to be not a surprise, but, you know, really interesting to explore. When you read those comments at the end, that's the bit that always gets me. And that's the bit that inspires me to think about every school session we do and every time we meet employers or when we're talking to people who work within councils or, you know, any form of public or private sector business, we want to inform our work based on what we're being told in these in these surveys and you know from the very beginning it seems very prevalent you know so many comments you know one specific one um when they were at school violence happened every day and they were told look it's really bad you're being hit but let's be honest if you look like that you're bringing it on yourself you know that seems still to be the case and you know, the issues about being out and just being punched in the face because you look like you do or having something thrown at you. It just seems really common. Um, and then we get a lot of people saying things like, I'd like to be I'd like to be me, but I've toned it down because I just can't cope with living with this any longer. And then obviously we get other people saying every time they hit me, I'm more determined to be who I am. So you know, good luck to them and we're really proud of them for feeling that. So so I think I think that survey is going to be fascinating and I think that's our commitment going forward. You know, we're going to have to do everything we can to work with our academic friends and partners and gather as much data. And, you know, if it's not proven, 
that this group is being targeted. You go to every event and every festival, and I can't tell you, you know, the amount of people that say this stuff. I can't believe that this isn't part of very sadly their normal experience. Um, so yeah, this data is a really interesting starting point, and what we'd like to do is we'll explore it in March, we'll launch the findings, and then I think we'll build on it, and let's see how we can actually maybe do some really interesting research that will maybe make people really sit up and understand just how prevalent this crime is. Excellent, and finally, um, would further research or change in policy practice that you feel needs to be done to tackle this problem? Um, well, I think for me, initially, that research that I've just mentioned would be a great idea. We need to build on it. The more we understand about the nature of what's happening and how many people it's affecting, it's a very small community comparatively. Um, and as I say, if it's not being recorded, no one's really ever got to grips with that. So what would be amazing is if we had a more substantial study, maybe to get to the bottom of that. Um, I think there are other things that we can do, maybe non-legislative measures that what we can actually do to maybe make a difference. So that's things like raising the profile of alternative hate crime, letting people really understand what's going on and the prevalence of it. Obviously doing everything we can with the community to encourage reporting, that is really important. We come back to our education work again, especially with young people, but with all communities where there's a lot of community division because of difference and intolerance and actually doing everything we can to really make people rethink their own prejudices and how that's displayed in their choices and in their behaviours. And um, obviously, we will also um, carry on talking to the community and we would like them to be able to access the support they need. Um, you know, I'm really interested in reporting and I think a lot more work could be done in how alternative subcultures report hate crime. And I think if there was a place they could go where they felt they were understood and they didn't have to prove themselves, um, almost, you know, as a victim, you have to prove you're the victim before people listen, which is really awful. You know, again, I had an email from a dad last week and his son had his nose pouring with blood and approached a police officer and the police officer said, move on, son because he sees somebody who looks alternative, who his view might, I don't know, have tattoos or might look alternative. And his reaction is there's been a fight. Well, actually, no, somebody's been assaulted, but they don't even they don't even give him the time to find out what had happened. Um, so, you know, anything we can do to encourage reporting, but you really feel though when they do report, something needs to change so they really get that support because otherwise we're directing them in this way and when they do it, they you know they don't get the response we would hope for. Um, so I think we've got a lot of work to do, but I think I think we know where we're going and I think this survey is the initial start of some really interesting conversations and what I would like to see over the next couple of years, I would really like to see us begin to make more of a difference on things like reporting and and giving people that that better response at the beginning, rather than having to fight their way through a system who seems determined to blame them um, for something that's happened to them. So yeah, that's where I think we should be going. And Mike? I'd, I'd just like to, I, I think perhaps answer it with more of a generic uh, answer around hate crime in, in general. I think the work on hate crime, certainly um, from the, the, the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence, coming forward to about 2015, 
actually the involvement in academia in shaping the way that a lot of this work was done was really strong. Uh, there was a report by Gus John called uh, Race for Justice uh, going back many decades that actually started to set out some of the principles that worked incredibly well. And one of the things that I think is really problematic is this trying to push away now from the really sound academic base of, basis of the work that we're doing onto uh, a, a much more politicised uh, approach to how we deal with hate crime and hate incidents and that I think is to be regretted. In terms of where the gaps are and the, the things that I'd like to see, I'd like to see a lot more work done in terms of understanding who the perpetrators of hate crime is. Alison has already alluded to this. There's some work done I think around 2015 by the Welsh Government looking at the journey uh, that a lot of hate crime perpetrators go on that leads them to the point that they're committing these offences. I think looking at some of the treatment models that are available there was some really good pioneering work done by both London and Liverpool probation uh, that sadly uh, is no longer there. But actually, my experiences tell me that unlike a lot of other offenders, this is a group of people that in the majority would be highly susceptible to effective offender treatment programmes. And unless we do give some sort of intervention with these people, they can go on to commit the most horrendous of offences and frankly, merely incarcerating them does very little uh, or nothing in terms of moving away from that. I'd love to see some other work as well done around what works in the online world. Uh, I alluded to it before, I did some work uh, setting up a counter-narrative uh, project some years ago. I hate to say it, but I'm not a completely convinced that that is the most effective way of dealing with uh, toxic material online and I'd love some more work. Uh, I know Cardiff University has been doing some work uh, around this area but to understand what actually is effective around that. And finally I, I need to say this, um, we lost in the hate crime world an incredible warrior when we lost Sylvia. I spend a lot of time talking about this stuff. It takes me a long time to get my points across. I'm aware of that. Sylvia used to do it in a heartbeat. And I'm so proud of the fact that Alison and others are now taking this forward because it's really, really important that we do and that we continue it in both Sylvie and Sylvia's name. Thank you. I want to say a massive thank you, not only for today's very informative uh, podcast, but also your inspirational work in the field of hate studies. Because if we tackle the targeted victimization and hate crimes against alternative subcultures, I think we're tackling hate crime more generally. Yeah. Because it's about tackling that prejudice and doing that preventative work, raising um, awareness, um, using education. Um, so you are both inspirational. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure and an honour to speak to you. Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been a privilege for us as well, Irene. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.